Good morning. This morning we're reading from James still, starting in uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exultation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Thank you, Brian. Good morning, church. It is good to see you guys here this morning. I got to tell you, um, this week was great. Now, this week was great because I'm having the opportunity, one-hour appointments, to meet with people that have been in Bergen Park Church for whether you're a founder, and I heard about some of you founders, I was listening to Jim's sermons as I was getting ready to come to Bergen Park. I was listening to Jim and writing down, who are these founders and what does that mean? And so I know some of the founders, people have been here for longer than, I don't know how long. How long is a founder? 20 years, I guess as long as Jim has been here just about. And then some have been here like six months. I know I was talking to someone today that had been here a very short period of time and uh, some a year. But if you go out into the entryway, there is, um, what would you call it, sign-up sheet? And on there, there are some times. Now, I know for some of you, maybe you've got kids, you're traveling, all those kind of things. If there is not a time on there that works, just write your name and your number. Don't just write your name, but your number too. And then I'll follow up, and we'll figure out a time to get together. Does that make sense? And then if you don't sign up, i got to make you a promise. I will hunt you down. I will find out where you live, and I want to meet you guys, really. Uh, it's an opportunity for me to see the church uh, through your eyes. And also to get to know the community. Another question I'll ask you, and you can start thinking about this now, if there's someone in Evergreen that you can introduce me to that helps me to get to know the community, please introduce that person to me. I don't want to just get to know you. I also want to get to know the community in which we live. Those that have influence in our, our we call it a town, call it a town, city. it's not a city, it's a town, unincorporated area. <laughs> But please, uh, I'd love to get to know the people around, kind of connect. I saw yesterday the uh, art center opened up. Did you see that? There was a whole bunch of people out there. I wish I knew about that, and some of you might have gone, but um, it's good to be here. Hey, if you want to grab your Bible, we're going through the book of James. And this is a good time for me to go through the book of James. Hopefully it's been helpful for you, and, and God's using it in a way that's uh, really impacting where you are in life. You know, what I love about the Word of God and what I love about life is that wherever you are in Scripture, God will start dealing with you according to what He says. 
Have you experienced that? I'm always careful with the book that I pick because I know as soon as I start reading that book, God is going to first allow me to humbly apply His Word to my life. And when it comes to trials, uh, we've got enough, right? And so as I've started going through the, the book of James, I've found that there are new trials that are popping up in my life. And so please pray for us as we kind of walk through that as well. But also, I imagine for you, uh, God does that not because He's trying to hurt us or diminish life, but rather to give us life and to cause us to trust in Him. And so today we're going to look at a trial that may seem a trial you enjoy having in your life, a trial that doesn't seem like a bad thing, but a very, very good thing. And it's a trial I don't think any of us would really call a trial. He's going to call that trial, you ready? Prosperity. Now, prosperity isn't something I imagine many of us say, God, don't send that to me, don't send my way. Rather, it's probably the trial that all of us are thinking, you know, I wouldn't mind that. You know, God, if you sent that to me, I'd probably, I'd probably be okay. That's, that's one trial I can handle. And so today we're going to look at what it means to walk with God in the midst of prosperity. Now, before we do that, let's just get a little bit of review. As we've gone through the first um, eight verses, what James has first of all told us is that trials are inevitable. And so if you look down in verse 12, he captures that again. And he says in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. The question isn't if, the reality is when. And what God is doing in the midst of our trials is when those trials come, they test our faith. And the question is, how will we stand? How will we endure? What will be the result? Will we stand fast? Or instead of standing fast, will we find that our hearts, our fears, our anxieties, our worries start running to things, as James is going to say, that are like the flowers of the field. They look beautiful. You ever been to Texas in blue bonnet season? It's amazing. See a field of blue bonnets, it is gorgeous, it is majestic, but then the summer heat comes and it's dead. And so he's going to say, you know, in trials, when trials come, they test your faith, but what is it going to produce? Will what comes out of your life last or will it fade away? And then second, he's going to tell us that in the midst of our trials, God wants to give us wisdom. Again, he says in verse 3, For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, so that you might be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. But if you find that you do lack, here's the great news. Just ask. I mean, how, how simple an application is that? Just ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and He will give it to us. That what trials produces in us is wisdom. And God wants to give us wisdom to see life as He sees it. Not to see life according to what our pain or trial is actually causing us to believe, but rather say, God, I want to see life the way you see it. Yeah, it's, that's a prayer that I have to ask on a regular basis. God, help me to see my wife the way that you want me to see her. Father, help me to see my children the way you want me to see them. And then, Lord, help me to see myself the way you see me. And what's remarkable is in verse 1, if you notice, James calls himself, and James is a pretty important guy, he says, I'm a servant. 
And so what I have to often do is like, Lord, in life, help me to see myself as a servant to my wife, to my kids. What does that look like? To the church, to the people I work with, to my town, to the people that I love. God, make me into the person you want me to be. And that's what James is telling us. The purpose of trials is not to crush us, but rather like gold, to go through the fire, and what comes out is refined, it's pure, and it can be useful to others. So what God does in our trials is he makes us useful to impact the lives of others. You know, I don't know about you, but I know I need that in my life. Now, I don't invite it. I don't think there's many of us that pray, God, uh, send me a trial. But when we walk through that trial, we find that God's character is faithful, He is with us, and we can trust Him. And so today we're going to look at this unusual trial called poverty and prosperity. Now, one of the things I've discovered is I've gone through the book of Proverbs, and if you know anything about James, James spent a lot of time in the book of Proverbs. You can tell that because he writes in the tradition of the book of Proverbs. And so he probably grew up with Jesus, and they were... You know, Monday morning reading the book of Proverbs. And so James, Jesus, the book of Proverbs says that a wise man is not a wise man because he knows all things. But a wise woman is a wise woman because she knows when she doesn't know all things. And she knows when I don't know something, what I need to do is to ask. And so the writer of Proverbs says this in Proverbs 19, verse 20. He says, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom for the future. See, the definition of a fool in terms of trials is a fool is one who says when the trial comes, God, myself, I got it. I don't need any help. See, one who is wise admits, Father, I need you, and I need your wisdom. And so in verses 9 through 11, what he's going to do is give us a test case. Now, maybe you've gone through school, master's degree, or maybe even in your work environment, you have test case. You have these scenarios that you walk through to give you an example, to kind of ask you the question, you know, what would I do if I found myself in the same situation? Well, that's what he's doing in verses 9, 10, 11. He's taking verses 1 through 8, and he's saying, okay, guys, church, let's apply it. And so he gives us two kinds of trials, two tests. Now, what's unique about this story is that in both cases, though, what the people are going through is very, very different. On the one hand, poverty. On the other hand, prosperity. The unique thing that he shows us is that both of them are looking to the same thing to give them meaning and purpose in life. Two people walking through two very different experiences. One is poverty. Lost his house, lost his job. Job has been outsourced to India. His house is being foreclosed. Everything that he thought he had is is starting to slip away, and another person who's doing very, very well, and yet James is going to say, watch out. Though on the outside, your trials look very, very different, your heart is running towards the same thing. And so he's writing verses 9 through 11 to a group of people who in the first century were going through tremendous suffering. Now, on the one hand, if you know historically, they were going through famine. So that in that area, in that region at that time, there's tremendous famine. And so it's very, very difficult to be successful no matter how wise, talented, or good you may be. Because when it doesn't rain and you live in an agricultural community, it doesn't matter how, ingen how much ingenuity you have. You're just not going to be successful. 
Now, most people that James were talking to were going through poverty. But what's interesting is there are those in verse 11 who were rich. And we know that because he calls them brothers. He says the lowly brother, but also the rich brother. And then if you go to chapter 5, he says in verse five, chapter 5, verse 1, Come now, you who are rich. And so James is talking to a very poor community. But on the other hand, there were those that were doing very, very well. And they were sitting right by, beside each other, you imagine, in the same auditorium, probably in the same home, right side by side. And they're looking and they're evaluating each other. And the rich may be feeling very, very good about their circumstances and their situation. And maybe they're feeling very, very good because they're thinking, you know, if I'm prospering, it must mean, you ready? That God loves me. Right? Because when things are going very, very good, what do we assume? God, you must be happy with me because look at how well my life is going. Now, if you're going through hardship and poverty, what do we assume? God, you must not be very happy with me because why would these things be happening? Now, those two people are standing side by side in the same house, the same little church. They're raising their hands. They're praising God. And they're having to evaluate, Lord, how do I, how do I see myself in light of who you are and, Lord, in light of who I am? And so James starts speaking. And on the one hand, he says, you know, poverty is a trial. And I don't think anyone here would disagree with that. You know, going through a, a time of poverty when you do not have what you need. I couldn't imagine not being able to feed my kids, not knowing where the next paycheck's going to come from, the next dollar is going to come from to take care of my family. I know as a husband, as a man, that makes me feel very, very weak. And thankfully, there's only been a few moments in life where I've looked at the bank account and said, Lord, where's it going to come from? And maybe that has been your story, or, or maybe you have walked through periods of time. Or what you had was little, and the prospects in front of you looked very, very small. Now, we would all agree that's a trial. But it's not only poverty he calls a trial. The uniqueness, what kind of turns things on its head, as he said, also there is a trial in prosperity. Now, Paul also captures this. You'll find this throughout the Old and the New Testament. In 1 Timothy, if you want to turn there, 1 Timothy chapter 6 Paul talks about not simply those who are wealthy, but rather he says in 1 Timothy 6 verse 9, but those who desire wealth or those who desire riches fall into temptation. Now notice he's not saying those who have riches fall into temptation, but he's saying the desire for riches can lead you to a place that separates your heart from God. Those that desire. So the problem... The problem is not that money is bad. You know, the Bible is very, very positive when it comes to money. Proverbs says over and over, work hard. Make as much as you can. It is good to work hard. In 1 Timothy, it says God has given us all things for our enjoyment. Even in the book of Ecclesiastes, God says we should eat, drink, and be merry. And so God has given us all things for our enjoyment. Money, hard work is good. It's good to make a lot, but here's the caution. Don't make a lot of what you make. God says to make a lot. It's good to work. It's good to work hard, but be careful making a lot. Are you with me? 
of what you make. Don't make much of what you make, meaning don't allow what you make to influence who you are and to influence how you see yourself. But rather, walk with the wisdom that comes from God. I love this in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8. The writer of Proverbs says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Have you ever prayed that? God, give me neither poverty, but this seems counterintuitive, but give me not prosperity. Now, in poverty, why? Well, I may go out and steal my daily bread and profane your name, but in prosperity, you notice what he says? I may forget you. In prosperity, I may think I don't need you. You know, in the book of Deuteronomy, you may remember the Israelites, they went through some poverty. They went through a desert, and there wasn't much there. But they came into a land flowing with milk and honey, meaning God gave them all the talents. God provided the economy. He provided the decades in which they lived. He provided the talents, the means, the success. Everything was laid out. All they had to go in and do was be faithful. But in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8, in verse 10, God gives them this warning. He says to the Israelites, And you shall eat and be full. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that He has given you. Now notice, he says it is good to be full. It is good to possess the land. All of the things I'm giving you are good. These are great things that come from me. But notice, in verse 11, this is Deuteronomy 8, verse 11, the warning is, take care. Take care that when you're full and when you have a lot of good, take care that you do not forget the Lord your God. Verse 12, because when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and you live in them and you're watching the Broncos today and the Cowboys, it says that in verse 13, and when your herds and flocks multiply and when your silver and gold is multiplied and all you have, he said, everything is multiplied and then you lift up your heart and it's full. But then he says, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Verse 17, beware lest you say to your heart, heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. See what he's saying? Wealth is good. God provides all things. But be careful not to make much of what you have. And in the end, there's a danger, isn't there, in prosperity. And what James wants to teach us is that though money is a good thing, we need, men, we need wisdom to know how to respond. And so again, he says in verse 12, blessed is the man. So after he talks about poverty and after he talks about prosperity, he says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, whether the trial of poverty or the trial of prosperity. Now, it's interesting, in verse 8, he talks about one who doubts, that to get wisdom from God, we have to be one who walks by faith and doesn't doubt. Now, again, we talked last week, doubting doesn't mean you have to have absolute intellectual certainty. Rather, when you doubt, what you're doing is you're double-minded. He describes that later on in verse 8. 
And to be double-minded means to have divided loyalties, to have your heart split. And on the one hand, you're running to God and like, okay, God, what do you say? And when you don't like what God says, you kind of run to someone else. And then when what he says you don't like, you kind of run back to God because that's not working. And you find yourself doing this, which is the wave of the sea that's blown and tossed by the wind. And when you're like that, God can't bless you. He can't meet you where you are because he can't, he can't get you long enough to be still so that he can speak into your life. And what James is saying as he moves from verse 8 into verses 9, 10, and 11, he says poverty and prosperity have a way of dividing the loyalty of your heart. You with me? Money has a way of dividing the loyalty of your heart. Now, you guys probably know this because Jesus said it. You cannot serve two masters. Now, he could have picked a lot of masters, right? You know, he could have picked a lot of things to call two masters. You cannot serve two masters. You'll either love one or hate the other, or you're going to be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve, church, both God and what? Money. Why did he pick money among every possibility out there? And listen, he was writing to a people who did not have money. Most were poor, farmers. Their money was in what they owned, in their cattle and their land. Why is he saying that? Because what money does is it can divide our loyalty to God. Because money can convince us of things that spiritually are very, very unhealthy for us. And they lead us in a direction where we act more like a fool than one who is wise. And so we're going to look at that today. But it's interesting, you know, he says this in verses 9 and 10, he talks about boasting. Did you notice that? He says, the lowly man... Or the poor man should boast in his exaltation. But then he says, you know, and the rich in his humiliation. Now, what is he saying? Now, first of all, we may say, wait a minute, I thought boasting wasn't a good thing, right? Because Scripture says don't boast. But it actually says don't boast, but make sure if you're going to boast, let's boast in the Lord. In the same way you boast in the Broncos, boast in the Lord. Be excited about what God is doing. And know that God watches over you. He doesn't slumber or sleep. He's given you all things to bless you, but boast in Him. Now, what happens when you're walking through poverty is the world has a way of deflating those who are poor. Poverty has a way of deflating you, doesn't it? I mean, if you've experienced that, gone through a time of uncertainty, a time of loss, when you lose something that you value, it causes you to feel very, very low, And you look around, you realize you have no resources, you have no place to go, you've got nothing to eat. It leaves you feeling very, very weak. And so he says, for those who are poor, I want you to lift yourself up. But then notice, to those who are rich, there's a different kind of spiritual danger. It's not that you feel deflated, right? What do you feel when you do well? When the check comes in, look at what I did. Look at what I've done. I am smart. I am gifted, I'm talented, I'm beautiful, I got it together. Wow! And what does he say to the rich? You need to boast in your humiliation. That seems a little strange. Who wants to boast in their humiliation? Now, what, is he, what is he directing us to? Well, here's the beautiful thing. The poor man and the rich man, they're struggling with the same thing. 
They're both looking to money to give them their identity. Do you see that? Why do the poor feel low? Because I don't have it. Why do the rich feel great? Because I do have it. But what is it that exalts the poor and humbles the rich? It's Jesus. You ever listen to the song of Mary? Go read that in Luke chapter 2. What Jesus did was He exalted the poor. He brought low the rich. Now, what does that mean, church? Because we have that. What does that mean? What it means is we have to look to the gospel. The poor look to the gospel. What do they need to see in the gospel to be exalted? John 3.16, you know it. For God so loved, poor man, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. To the poor, God is saying, do not believe that your physical circumstances determines your worth before God. Don't be a fool. Poor man, don't be a fool to believe that what you own somehow diminishes who you are. Mary was poor. Most of the disciples other than Matthew were poor. You know, most of the church over history is poor. And the church keeps moving to the poor countries. You notice that? As soon as Europe does well, comes to America. As soon as America does well, goes to Brazil. As soon as Brazil does well, goes to China. The gospel always finds its heart where those who are poor. Now, why is that? Because see, the rich, what they need to do is to boast in their humiliation. What does that look like? What that looks like is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The gospel has good news, but it's got bad news. The only way good news can be good news is you first have to receive the bad news. And the bad news is I am so sinful that Jesus Christ had to die for me. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What do the rich need to do? They need to remind themselves the reason I am accepted is because of the death of Jesus. And what that does is it puts your identity right. Because you know you're not accepted because of what you have or what you did. You're accepted because of what Jesus Christ has done. And see, that brings a humbleness. But see, it doesn't lead to despair because for God so loved. The gospel is, I am so loved that Jesus wanted to die for me, and yet I am so sinful that Jesus had to die for me. And what that produces in you is a humble courage. A humble courage that to the poor lifts them up. To the rich brings them down so that our identity is in Jesus. Are you with me? What James is giving us is the wisdom so that we might walk in life in a way that our identity is not in what I have or what I do or what I don't have or what I don't do, but my, rather my identity is in Jesus. And listen, Jesus is wisdom. When you read the Gospels, what you're reading is what it looks like to walk in wisdom in the everyday stuff of life. And James is saying to us, Evergreen, Bergen Park Church, I want you to walk in wisdom in the everyday stuff of life so that people might see me working through you. That we are the body of Christ, which means the fullness of God's presence dwells in us. That's amazing, isn't it? The fullness of God's presence dwells in us. Well, we are to bring that presence into this community in such a way that others experience the presence of God through us. The only way that's going to happen is we have to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. And he's saying, in wealth, we have to watch out. There's a danger. And so this is how Paul captures it in uh, Colossians chapter 3. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, 
Meaning if Jesus is your life, then you're seated where Christ is. So set your minds, Colossians 3 verse 2, on things that are above, not on earthly things. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's a trial in poverty, there's a trial in prosperity. But I want you to notice something. You ready? Where does he focus most of his attention? Only one verse on poverty, but rather he gives us two verses on prosperity. And he's saying there's a danger in wealth. Jesus said the same thing. You know, Jesus had some strong words to say when it came to wealth. We learned one and that we can't serve two masters, but he also had a discussion with a rich young ruler that came to him and he said, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Meaning, what can I do to earn God's affections and favor? And Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 19. He says, you know, truly I say to you, only with difficulty, and listen, will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't sound good. Verse 24, again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what he's doing is called a metaphor of impossibility. Now, I know there are those that call it, there's a certain gate. They say there's a certain gate in Jerusalem that's called the, the needle gate or the camel gate. I don't, I don't know what that is. Um, but what I think he's describing is the biggest land animal known to mankind in Israel was a camel. They didn't know about elephants. Didn't have National Geographic yet. And so they, they didn't know. So they're, they're using an illustration of impossibility. A camel, the largest land animal, cannot pass through the eye of a needle. Therefore, it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't sound good. Is Jesus somehow antagonistic towards wealth and prosperity? Because that's what the disciples thought. Because the disciples in verse 25 say this. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished. And they said, then who can be saved? And listen to how Jesus responded. Verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, did you notice he didn't say with a rich man, this is impossible. Rather, he changed his identification. He said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible, meaning salvation is always a miracle. I don't care if you're poor or you're rich. Salvation is always, always a miracle of God. But what he's saying when he's speaking to this rich man, there is something about wealth that can create a spiritual danger in us that though for all of us is equal and that men don't typically humble themselves before God, but with wealth, there is something about wealth that can cause those spiritual dangers to be heightened and to be increased. And so Jesus is drawing our attention to that. The book of Proverbs is drawing our attention to that. Moses is drawing our attention to that. And so let's ask the question, what are the challenges with wealth? What is it that he's addressing? Now, I want to share just briefly three ideas with you. And here's the first one that prosperity can distract us from what really matters. Prosperity has a way of distracting us from what really matters. Now, let me just share my story. You know, I grew, in a, uh, grew up in a middle-class family, great uh, parents. My dad did very, very well and, and retired at the age of 50, went back to school, became a chaplain. Now he's the chaplain at Baylor Heart Hospital in Plano, Texas. I don't know if he's ever going to retire. 
Every year he says he's going to retire. You know, you have one of those in your house? He's, every year he's going to retire, but he hasn't retired. He's 74. Uh, no, he's 73, 72. 72. Sorry, Dad, if you're listening. And so he did, he did very, very well. And, and then for us, so we, we've always known a house that had everything we needed. And then you, you kind of go off, you go to college, you get that loan, you know, can't, you, you got to pay that off. And, and as a young man, you know, you take on this, these challenges. I think if I was older, I probably wouldn't have taken on those challenges and taken on all that debt. And then going to seminary, taking on more debt and only having one car. And then after a while, you start paying off some of that debt. And God kind of blessed us in some very unique ways to provide that all that debt was paid off before we ever had to go buy a house. But then we bought a house. And when we bought the house, we had two cars, not just one car, but now two cars, and we had a house. And so suddenly what I started finding is the more that I started accumulating, I don't know about you, the more my attention started going to trying to maintain all the things I had. Because if you change one word in business, it becomes busyness. And making money causes us to be pretty busy. Because you're not only making, but you also have to sustain. And then you've got to hire people to take care of the things you own. And now you're managing people who are managing the things you own. What he's saying is the more wealth, what often happens is we become incredibly busy. And it's easy to stop asking the first order of questions in life. Meaning, why did God give me the things that I have? And we're so busy maintaining, we don't ask, what is it for? Now, I was reading an article this week in Business Insider, you know, because I read Business Insider no, I don't. <laughs> but it was about a, an article that was talking about why we were making more, but we're not as happy with what we have. And it was based on a book, and the book was entitled Happy Money, The Science to Smarter Spending. And in it, they were talking about five reasons why, though we make more, we may not be as happy with what we have. And I found this fascinating. And the first one was we're buying too many things, and not enough experiences. We're buying things, but we're not investing in experiences. And he's saying those that are happy invest their money in experiences and bringing people together in dinners. Those that tend to uh, take joy in things are not as happy as those that invest in experiences. Then he said, second, we're more focused on getting more money than on buying more time. That those who are happy invest in things that allow them to have more time with those that they love. Third, we think bigger or better houses will make us happy. And I thought this was interesting because I'm about to buy a house. And it says, and I quote, and this is coming from the book, Happy Money, the Science to Smarter Spending. And it said, even in the heart of middle America, housing seems to play a surprisingly small role in the successful pursuit of happiness. Dunn and Norton write, if the largest material purchase most of us will ever make provides no detectable benefit for our overall happiness, i got to keep telling myself that, no detectable benefit for our overall happiness, then it may be time to rethink our fundamental assumptions about how we use money. That bigger and better does not always mean more satisfied. And fourth, and this isn't from the Bible, this is from Business Insider. We're letting ourselves have too much of a good thing. And then finally, the fifth one was we're investing too much in ourselves and not enough in others. And I quote, 
In a study of more than 600 Americans, personal spending amounted for the lion's share of people's budgets. They write, but the amount of money individuals devoted to themselves was unrelated to their overall happiness. Now, what did predict happiness? Listen to this, the amount of money they gave away. The more they invested in others, the happier they were. Now, money has a way of keeping us from seeing what matters the most. Proverbs 11, verse 4 says this, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. It's easy to get distracted. So the first thing is that prosperity can distract us from what matters, but second, prosperity has a way of distorting the way we see ourselves. Again, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8 says this, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? As we said earlier, prosperity and wealth have a way of causing us to think we've got what we need. I've got the intelligence I need. And sometimes when finances go well, it causes you to believe you're not just smart with money, you're smart in every area of life. Have you met somebody like that? Incredibly successful. Maybe they kind of overnight success made some wise business decisions. And now because of that, they think every decision will be gold and everything they say should be wisdom. But what does he say? Lord, if I get a lot, I may forget you, meaning I may not realize that the essence of wisdom is to know in my heart, I'm a fool. Are you with me? The essence of, listen, the essence of wisdom is to know in my heart I'm a fool. Because so often we live in ways that deny the presence of God, that deny that I'm a servant. I know that's my testimony. When I come home after a long day's work, the last thing I want to do is love my wife as Christ loves the church. But that's my calling. See, I can walk in, and this is my problem. I'm sure you've never had this issue. That I can kind of think to myself and even say out loud, don't you know what I did today? I know, I'm still pretty young, so I have said that a few times. Don't you know? Don't you know how hard I've worked? Don't you see how well I'm caring for the kids? You know what that is? That's folly. I'm looking at all the things I've done, all the things that I'm investing in. I'm puffing, I'm building myself up. Wisdom says, Jason, you're a servant. Your joy is not in allowing other people to serve you. Your true joy and your true identity is found in allowing me to work through you. And see, wealth has that way of causing us to see ourselves in ways that we... That's not who you are. In church, that's not who we are. We are servants. Whether we have a lot or have a little... It doesn't impact our value before God. Rather, God wants to work through us. And I think this is the worst thing of all. That in the end, money always blinds us from how important it is to us. Money blinds us from how important it is to us. i, I got to confess something. I've never had somebody come into my office and say, Pastor, I'm struggling with greed. I've had people say I'm struggling with lust. You know, I've got a, a tongue that's uncontrollable. But have you ever confessed to someone, so, you know, I'm struggling with greed. Why? Because that's the essence of greed, isn't it? We see it in others, but it's very, very, very difficult to see it in ourselves. It's hard to identify. 
And so when money comes in, we have to have wisdom. It doesn't mean that money is bad. It doesn't mean that success isn't bad. But rather, we want to make sure that we're making much of what makes much of us. And what makes much of us is God. So what's the solution? And I love this. The solution is the generosity of God. You notice in verse 12 where he goes? He doesn't say, you rich people, you're bad. Poor people are good. What does he say? Blessed is the man. That's what we're living for. Now, blessedness is a very rich and deep word. It's a deep word that even in English, it's hard to describe what it means because it's physical blessing. It's, it's a spiritual, internal blessing. It's a joy, this underground aquifer that you're constantly pulling from, even though everything in your life is a mess. You have this aquifer underneath that you can pull up and it's fueling life. It's like Psalm 1, the tree planted by streams of water. All of that he's describing. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial for when he has stood the test, He'll receive what lasts, the crown of life. The crown is the metaphor. The gift is life, and life is in, in Jesus. That what God is saying to us is through the things that we have, let us invest in the things that last. Let us not invest in things that, that rust and moth destroy. doesn't mean we don't get into business. doesn't mean we don't use our gifts and talents to maximize what we do. But we always use what we have to maximize what God is doing in the kingdom. And there is a way to be a great investor and yet to be a great investor in the kingdom of God. That we see everything we have as the gift of God. I love this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is speaking to a community that made some big promises. They were saying, God, you know, we're going to give to these, these people who are going through hard times. But then when the time came to actually give, they, you know, you kind of pull back a little. God, I made you this promise. I'm going to give X amount of my income this year. But when it actually came to giving, they pulled back. And so Paul reminded them, not by saying, hey, you're doing the wrong thing. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 8, if I can find it, I can't, so I'm going to quote it. He who is rich became poor so that in your poverty, in his poverty, you might become rich. Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that in his poverty, you, church, might become rich. Now, what does that mean? Jesus had it all. I don't know what it means to sit at the right hand of the Father, but it sounds good. Angels, heavenly realms, I don't know what that looks like, but it sounds like a great day. But he who had all things became a servant so that I, who was sinful, might become rich. There is a wealth that far surpasses anything we can physically own. And you know, you have it. We have it. We have it not in earthen vessels. We have it in us. It's the Holy Spirit. And we have it in each other, the body of Christ. There is a wealth in us that God wants to pour a generosity through us that he's already given to us. But are we amazed by the generosity of God through Jesus Christ? Are we? If we are, what he's saying is, if you know that he who is rich became poor so that you in your poverty might become rich... There is no limit to the generosity you will show to others. The problem isn't your generosity. You know what it is? It's our worship. The problem isn't our generosity. You know what lets loose of material wealth? Worshiping a God who had all things, and yet he became nothing 
so that you might become rich. It's worship. And the attitude we take in, in that is confession and faith. And Martin Luther, one of my favorite guys, we're coming up in the 500th year of Reformation. I know you all know this and you're excited. Yeah, it's the 500th year of the Reformation. It's on Halloween. He said, all of life is repentance. Because listen, I'll close with this. All of life is looking at the beauty of God. And when you see God, you see yourself. When you see yourself, you fall on your knees in mercy, and God lifts you up, and he says, do not be afraid. You're my child. I've adopted you. I've been generous to you. Now, church, let us be generous. Generous to the kingdom. Generous to others, not just in our giving, but in our words. And generous in such a way that we show the generosity of God. What's the solution? We need to worship and know the God who is generous. And he gives all good gifts to those who ask. And then second, we need to have a plan. And as a church, as the body of Christ gathered at Bergen Park, we need to have a plan. And part of that plan is a personal plan that we need to ask. Lord, what do you want us to give? Paul says we don't give out of compulsion. We don't give because the guy up front just said to give. You know why you give? You give because God loved us enough to send his son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we give so that we might use those gifts to share that blessing with others. Church, we have a privilege and an opportunity to show the generosity of God to the people in Evergreen. And when we can do it together, there is a courage to give in ways that reflects the power of God. Are you with me? Let's do that together. Let's share that together. And when we struggle, will we help each other not to condemn but to pray for and to lift each other up? Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your generosity. And I'm reminded in my hours of weakness and when I find myself in those places where I'm asking God, why won't these people do what I want? Why can't I get what I want? Why aren't things working out the way I want? I remember, Lord, the cross wasn't something that you... That was a joy in the experience. Rather, you saw the joy in my coming to you. You saw the joy in my being humbled before a God of holiness and grace so that you might lift me up and cause me to see that, Jason, being a servant is so much more satisfying than just having your needs met. I want to meet the needs of others through you. Father, we confess that that vision can only come from you. And Lord, we ask that you multiply in our hearts today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we respond in worship.